0: Hello. Our Eric Thomas. Oh my God. Hi, it's Jeffrey Masters. I'm so glad you picked up. Oh, hello. Of course. Don't freak out while we are recording.
1: No worries. All my phone calls are recorded as well.
0: Oh, good. That's great to know. So I wanted to call you because we are about to play the interview that you and I recorded in person when your memoir Here For It came out. And I wanted to call and check in because you also have a brand new book coming out, and that is called The Kings of Be More.
1: I do, yeah, yeah. I love that we are able to sort of bridge these two conversations because, you know, Here for It is a memoir and Kings of Be is a YA novel that feels very much in the same world. It's set in Baltimore. But, you know, because it's fiction, anything can happen. And it's just kind of a, like a romp, you know, it's inspired by Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And I just really wanted to create something, a world where two black queer 16 year olds could have a, a magical day long adventure.
0: Right. And so at the heart of the book, the heart of their relationship between the two teenagers you mentioned, it's a friendship. It's not a romance.
1: Yeah. Why did you want to explore that? Oh, I think platonic love is so important. And I think, you know, as much as we see on-screen depictions of first loves, that's wonderful, that's great. I think the, the way that a lot of us learn about love is by loving our friends. And for queer people, I think that, that has been the lifeline for a lot of us. Family of choice is, is a huge component of queer life and family of choice starts with finding one person who is your friend and in your introduction to a larger scene or a larger way of understanding yourself. I think it's so important to see depictions of friends who love each other, friends who are like, we have thought through whether we're attracted to each other. We are not, and that is fine, and it is not an issue, and we're not eventually going to fall in love. It is okay to love your friends, to hug your friends, and to not want to marry your friends or kiss your friends it's also okay to want to kiss your friends if your friends want to kiss you back but platonic love i think is is underrepresented and i'm i think it's super important
0: i love what you said and i also think this is a theory so feel for disagree but i also think that we have trained audiences to see two people on screen or on the page and if they're both men and they're both gay we've trained them to think that they are going to be love interests and bang, hundred yeah, percent. Yeah, like the only options for queer characters.
1: Yeah, no, I, I think that's it. And I think I mean, even you look at the cover of the book, and people are like, "Oh, are they gonna? Are they gonna hook up? Or are they gonna fall in love?" And it's like, I want, I want to pull a, a billboard in Times Square that's like, they are actually just friends. We're dangerously close in depictions of of young gay relationships to a place where. You kind of can't see two, two young men or two young women who are adorable and think, oh, that this is all their relationship is going to be. I don't think that friendship is the JV version of a relationship. You know, friendship can be the, the be all and end all. It can be the, the most fulfilling part. So I, I think it's really important to, to highlight that.
0: That is really profound. And also when it comes like books, like we have this whole genre called romance. Mm -hmm. And when it comes like intimate friendships, like that doesn't like fit as squarely for like marketing materials.
1: Yeah. And I get it. It's harder because we don't have a very wide vocabulary when we talk about intimacy and it's part of our larger cultural problem. We're afraid of each other. We're afraid of being close to each other. We're afraid of showing affection. And then when we do show affection, we're like, oh well this this must mean that we're in love and it's like there are a lot of different shades of affection of care of being in love and someone who's been in relationships someone who's married sometimes it's easier to just have a friend who at the end of the night you're like well good night this was wonderful i can't wait to see you tomorrow i'll text you when i get home i'm going back to my place where all my stuff is and i don't have to think about anybody else i love that (laughs) So the new book is called The Kings of B-More. Should we jump in and listen to the interview? I think so. I think so.
0: Then one more question, putting you on the spot. Can you say the name of the podcast with me in unison? <laughs> okay, go. So from The Advocate Magazine in partnership with Vlad, this is LGBTQ, LGBTQ. and A with R. <laughs> Eric Thomas, author of The Kings of B-More. Let's hear it. Go. Sorry. I was like,
1: oh, gosh, oh, gosh.
0: I love the book, and also I couldn't believe how—and uh, I don't mean this rudely—but how moving and touching it was.
1: Mm, no, I, I I take that in the spirit in which it's offered. I knew that people would be surprised, considering that like most people know me from my L columns, which are a uh, heightened voice and all comedic. I've written maybe maybe six or seven serious op-eds for L, where I just sort of like was vulnerable and open to vain. But most of the time I'm like playing a heightened version of myself. And I was really nervous actually that people would like open the book and be like, mm, I was looking for jokes. And my editor and my agent were, have been very, very patient with me and saying there are like six jokes per page. It's okay to say like, also it hurt my feelings when I was gay bash or whatever. Yeah. Know? I feel like that's the truest version of myself. I... I'm always reaching for humor. I'm always reaching for joy. But also, like, I am... That reaching involves, like, pushing through pain and moments of deep suffering you know which is what it is to be human of
0: course yeah and one of the moments that stuck with me after reading the book um after like a week Mm -hmm. and it's really small but it was about your parents and Mm -hmm. what they sacrificed for you Mm -hmm. and your brother growing up yeah and you wrote that for a 10-year period your parents didn't buy a single piece of new clothes for themselves yeah
1: i always struggle to describe to people like the breadth of their sacrifice and that little detail about the clothes actually is something that my mother just mentioned offhand. I was like maybe midway through writing the book. And I went back and I just like rewrote that essay um, with that in mind. That's so recent to learn. Yeah. Yeah. And because it was just, and it's, you know, I say in the essay, there way of describing that period in their lives is just so offhand and casual. This is just what we had to do. You know, my father would get up at like five in the morning or no, he would be on the road at five in the morning delivering newspapers and then go to his full time day job as a manager and then like was very active in the church as well. And that was a full job for him. And my mother, I was thinking the other day, my mother was trained as a classroom teacher and then she uh, took care of my, my brothers and I for 16 years, or my brothers and me. So she took all that energy and put it into our home life. So she there was constant educational stimulation. There was constant like field trips, like actual field trips with no money. I think about my life right now. You know, I'm, I'm if I had had a child when my parents had me, I'd have a, probably an 11 year old right now. <laughs> I can't handle that. And two, the idea of living such a, hugely different life, you know, not being able, not even considering uh, that I'd be able to get the things that I, I want, let alone need, you know, mending holes and like waking up at the crack of dawn. And I don't know, it's, it's stunning to me. It really is. Yeah, it's.
0: I mean, I think about that all the time too. Like where my parents were, and mm-hmm. where I am. Yeah. I mean, I just moved to New York, like you know. Yeah. And I was able to make that choice on my own and mm-hmm. execute it in like six
1: weeks. Oh my gosh! Yeah.
0: <laughs> and I like love that I can only re- have to rely on myself. Mm-hmm. It's like mm-hmm. it feels so
1: luxurious. Right. I often think though, and I wonder what you think of this. Like, I wonder about whether I'm experiencing a wide enough version of life, you know, like, I don't think sacrifice is necessary to sort of fully feel human. But I also wonder about like, you know, when you have children, particularly, like you also have to think outside of yourself a lot. And I think I, I think I'm pretty empathetic. I think outside of myself a lot, but like, I wonder if there's another even deeper version of me that could be out there. If I had to like make, harder or more complicated choices. Does that make sense or am I just being weird?
0: It makes sense, but I don't think about that for me personally just because like that, that thought process of who I could be is like endless. Oh yeah,
1: that's true. You know,
0: I think I grew up in the South and I think about it in terms of queerness in like California or Mm. just in the last nine years. Mm -hmm. And had I been able to be this like loud, flamboyant queer person, they described me as animated growing up. He's so (laughs) animated, which is coded Mm -hmm. queer. Yeah, yeah. Right? And I like really like Tone down my personality. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I also have like a very dark sense of humor, which mm-hmm. I like, but um, I wonder like how much of these personality traits would be different had yeah. like my childhood been different.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think about that a lot, you know, and you know, obviously like going through the process of writing the book, I was like reevaluating all these different influences that I had. I and mean, one thing I don't mention in the book is that my... Father was accepted into Dallas Theological Seminary, which is, I believe a, a Baptist seminary, I don't know, um, but I believe we were Baptist, so I would presume so. In, I had just gotten out of kindergarten, and we were going to go, and the only reason we didn't go was because I brought home chicken pox from school in the last day of kindergarten, and so all three of us, my brothers and I, uh, got chicken pox, and we couldn't sell the house because we couldn't show the house, so we couldn't move, because we didn't have, you know, enough moving money. And I think, what would my life have been like? If i grown up in some place in Dallas or Dallas adjacent underneath the arches of this conservative seminary, like I'd either be a complete lunatic or maybe I wouldn't even be out, even to myself, you know? And there's also, there's many, you know, I know there's many different iterations of what that could be, but it's just, it's stunning to me, like little, little things that could completely shift my life.
0: That is, that's fascinating. Also, Mm -hmm. just like so much
1: chance involved. Absolutely, absolutely.
0: That's so interesting about your father was accepted to seminary school and you grew up going to church and now I was surprised to read you're married to a pastor. Yeah.
1: (laughs) If I were like structuring this as like a movie, it'd be like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. I did not seek this out. I really didn't. I was looking for a church home for a long time and I wanted to be a part of an open and affirming congregation, um, because spirituality is very important to me. But I had a lot of trouble finding that for various reasons. You know, a lot of churches that are open and affirming, I found their style of worship was very different from what I'm used to. Uh, I'm very used to a charismatic style of worship. And then when I found my husband's church, I also found my husband and I was like, well, I can either be a congregant or I can be you know, trade, and I was like, "Well, I'll choose, I'll choose trade." Um, so I couldn't go to his church for a long time. You know, all that has been resolved now. But it, now people are like, "Oh, you're a pastor's wife." You know, like you know, you are you were like the big church, the big church hat. You know, and I don't because it's sort of like going to church now. Going to my husband's church is sort of like you know, if you if I was married to a banker and going to like watch him count money. You know, I'm very aware of the machinations and the the day to day work of it.
0: But you're, you don't feel any obligation to have like an added bit of like decorum or to cuss less or oh, something. No.
1: Oh, my really? God, no. Really? No. I write in the book about white church and black church, and he is a white. Um, and so there is just a different understanding of what is what decorum is. I, I came in there thinking I was going to have to like wear a three-piece suit, you know, and like my little church fan. And instead they're like, just come as you are. And I was like, oh, no, I can't do that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Did it ever give you pause in the beginning dating a pastor?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, like, I didn't feel the... I look back and I think to myself, I I, I, I try to interrogate my thought process and, and wonder whether there was ever a period where I was like, oh, this is weird. This is the church. There were moments where he would um, put on, like, the black pastor's shirt and the, the collar, and that felt very foreign and strange because it was very clear that he was the church. Um, but again, like it didn't feel like any version of the church that I knew growing up. You know, I didn't go to white churches even to visit. And I didn't sort of understand, like, his church ends an hour sharp. And I was like, we're just getting started. Like, I go, you know, I come from a church culture where you show up whenever and you leave nine hours later, you know? I mean, not really nine hours, but like, you know, three, four hours, you know, dinner afterwards. So it just felt so different that it almost seemed like it was a reinvention or a completely different idea of church. Wow. Yeah.
0: And so now that you are married to a pastor and it's such a big part of your life, like has that changed your relationship to religion?
1: A little bit. I actually, yes, actually, you know, he has, he went to Princeton Theological Seminary and uh, so he has a really intellectual understanding of religion and Christianity and the Bible. And he knows Greek and Hebrew and he's read the Bible in Greek and Hebrew. And so like, there are times where he'll will be talking about some idea or whatever, and he'll be, and he'll say like, "Well, in the in Hebrew, this word means this, and so that what has been translated as this, but that's actually not what it really means. It means this thing, and that's how people are getting things wrong." And I'm like, "Oh, okay. Well, you know, you, he has receipts, and I'm just like, no. I just I heard her, I heard her on a podcast that's what you're supposed to do. So, so a lot of my understanding of faith was sort of I think very basic, um, and. So being in relationship with him has sort of elevated that. The thing about intellectualizing something like faith, though, is that it doesn't feel like magic anymore. There's a thing that's ineffable and unexplainable, but also there are ways of tracking back through human history where these ideas come from. It involves being a lot more analytical, I think, about what I consider to be right and true, both in terms of, like, capital F faith, and also just in in terms of like how I exist in the world, you
0: know? I mean, I thought it was interesting in the book that you skipped over the traditional coming out story mm-hmm. where you tell your parents and write about their reaction. Yeah. Can you talk about
1: making that decision? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the the lens of the book is is really about otherness. And so I was very, I was trying to be very deliberate about showing people who I am without demonstrating my otherness. I didn't want to write a book that took the position that I was different and that everyone needed and that I had to like invite people into this weird and exotic world of being a human being. Um, and also the moments of coming out were, we uh, just felt deeply personal. And like, you know, it's, it's actually like a good story that I I never tell. And so like, the person who loves drama inside of me is like, oh no, I need to tell this story. And the rest of me is like, no, this is something that you don't have to like open that vein for people to understand who you are. I wanted to write a book that people could find themselves in without having to make myself overly accessible. You know what I mean? I wanted to be vulnerable without parading around my difference. And I, which is no shade to anybody who's written about their coming out, you know, I think that's those are very very important stories. But I didn't feel like that was, from a dramatic point of view, it also didn't sort of track in the the story of the book. You know, it's just amazing that we're at this
0: place. Mm -hmm. Actually, yeah. a queer writer can write a memoir and not write that
1: scene because it would have been required.
0: Absolutely. Even like five
1: years ago. Right, right. And that's the thing. A lot of people, there have been so many people who have made this possible for me. Like I couldn't have written this book, like you say, like five, 10 years ago. Um, And so I'm very, very grateful for that. But I'm also trying to embrace the gift that they have given me and tell a different story. Years ago, this book would have... If it existed at all, it would have probably focused on one aspect of my identity, probably my uh, my queerness, and and so it would be sort of that arc. And because of the writers that came before me and and put in the work and showed me how to come out and showed me how to write about myself and understand myself, I get to. Um, tell a different story, tell a new story.
0: And I think a lot of these stories you're telling, you mentioned it's about being an outsider, but it's also like dispelling queer myths. Mm -hmm. And it made me think that there are so many myths and stereotypes about queerness that other people assume, but we also grow up thinking them too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the things you wrote, I wrote it down, you were talking about the buildup about being out and finding queer community. Mm -hmm. And you wrote, it's strange when the thing behind the door isn't terrifying or wonderful, but rather just plain. When you find your people and realize they're just people.
1: Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I I deeply love, I love queer community. I love being in queer spaces. I love discovering new ways of finding and maintaining queer community. And I love the, the magic and the spectacle of that. Um, but I also love the basic boring humanity of it. And, you know, there's a thing, like, I grew up idolizing this, like this Nancy Myers version of life, where you've got a huge kitchen island and nothing is ever dirty, and you have a little snack drawer in your refrigerator. I don't know what goes in the snack drawer—like snacks, I guess—and I didn't have, you know, and like, but it was really like me idolizing a version of plain, normal Americanness that I just didn't have access to. Also, wealth, you know. And I love that in our community we can absolutely embrace the spaces where we differ from the larger heterosexual community and the places that we find ourselves really digging deep into spectacle and difference and performance. But I also love that we can be boring. That's freedom. (laughs) There's freedom in being, like, really, really unexceptional, you know? And there's freedom in, you know, like, I'm at a point, I'm 38, 38, and i'm married and we're trying to make new friends we live in baltimore and we moved there a couple years ago so we have like dinner parties with other queer couples and it's like four queer people sitting around a tall kitchen table drinking a bottle of wine and like talking about replacing the washing machine because it's leaking and that is true liberation you know it's a version of true liberation i don't want to sound I'm worried I sound problematic. I think it's a privilege to be able to be boring. And I really, I appreciate that privilege.
0: I don't think you sound problematic, but what I am what I got from that part of the book is that we've inadvertently trained people to think that to be gay, and specifically gay men, mm-hmm. less so with like women and trans folks, but to be gay is to have... Big wigs and lip sync and glitter, mm-hmm. and that is an aspect of gay life. But we've even somehow convinced ourselves or queer people that that is only the way to be queer.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think, well, I mean, I think, I think a lot of that is the straight gaze invading queer life. I and mean, I feel like that the same is true in my understanding of blackness. You know, like I grew up with the Cosby Show, and as much as that is not something that is. A good place to revisit anymore. The idea of the Huxtables is, was really, really potent to me because they were a happy family who faced the same kind of challenges that the family on family ties, growing pains faced, as opposed to every challenge being rooted in their Blackness, in their difference. And I think both stories are important. I think it's important to say, like, going through the world, because I'm queer or because I'm Black, there will be I will have ex- different experiences, but also I get to go through the world as a human being. I get to go through the world as a human being who just who wants love and wants community and wants, and you know does my laundry and goes to the grocery store just like anybody else. And so, you know, when I notice within my understanding of Blackness that like those little ideas that like, oh, I should be this kind of Black person or I should perform in this kind of way. I realize that's not Blackness talking. That's white supremacy talking through Blackness. And the same thing is true of queerness, I think. I think it is inherent to want to express yourself, whoever you are. And I think that, you know, there are so many wonderful ways of expressing yourself as a queer person. But I, th- I think often we get trapped in trying to perform to an audience that is ultimately hostile to our own existence. And, and you know, I, I want to push back on that.
0: And I think another part of the queer experience that you push back on, or maybe it's an assumption that I made, but I believe it was your second year of college mm-hmm. and you were loosely dating somebody. And I think the assumption would be that that would help you accept your queerness and normalize it. Mm-hmm. And it did the opposite. And mm-hmm. you retreated from being social in your studies. Yeah. Can you talk about what was going through your mind during that point?
1: Yeah. I mean, so there was the religious aspect where I, I definitely, I was like, oh, I'm uh, sinning right now. And so that was very difficult. Um, he was also a person of faith. He had a different faith than me. But he sort of just sort of segmented his life. And he would go out and do like proselytizing on the street on like Saturday mornings and then like come back to the dorm and like we'd hang out and watch Diana Ross movies. And that was that was what we did. And I did not understand how to either separate or integrate my life. And so it, there was just constant conflict. I also I think I came about it, I put the cart before the horse. I was I was not trying to rectify the splits that I found in my life at that point. I was like I guess I should have a boyfriend. I don't know. Maybe this will help me to feel more loved and instead like instead of saying like oh I'd like to actually put my full self out into the world. So yeah, it like it completely blew up my face. I thought that I was going to hell. I thought that I was ruining my life. I was really ruining my college experience. It was just, some, it was a mess. It was a hot mess. And, you know, it's really, getting a boyfriend has rarely been the solution to a problem, which is unfortunate because I feel like it should be. And same with
0: coming out, right?
1: Yeah. I would love to believe that
0: like, if you have depression and then you come out, your depression's cured. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like in the popular imagination, that's kind of like what's been represented mm-hmm. on screen. Yeah. And yet, it, as you know, that was mm-hmm. like not the case as well. Yeah. You write very openly about like mental health struggles. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is that something that you just like believe you'll have to be like working with and dealing with your entire
1: life? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I, you know, the first person I think, or the second person I think in the acknowledgements is my therapist, Brian. Um, I am obsessed with Brian and I am really grateful that I have therapy and that I have insurance through my husband's job that allows me to go to therapy. I don't, I don't think that I will ever be on the other side of any of these things because I don't think that it's an on-off switch. I think that it's part of being a person. And that's sort of one of the, the acceptance of that, I think, is key for me. To letting myself be in the center of my own story as opposed to this like weird aberration that like was depressed and religiously like stunted and, um, and not out and then like came out and got into an interracial relationship and like hung out with my parents and everything's great now. Everything is great now. But also like I spent two years, I spent the two years of this book deeply, deeply depressed and like sitting down in front of my computer and be like, let's write some jokes. Um, and that's just what it is, you know, and that's okay. Because we talk about
0: curing depression and maybe we should just be talking about like how to like recognize it faster and like Mm -hmm. work with it and
1: not like shame yourself for it. Right, right. I mean, you know, it's interesting. But at the beginning of this book, in the introduction, I asked the question like, what if instead of it gets better, what if it just gets? It just keeps getting. Which was a question I used to be very afraid of. I was like, okay, if if it doesn't get better, am I doing it wrong? You know, if I come out and I get in a relationship and I still realize that like, there's My life isn't perfect. Am I, bu- am I a bad queer person? Uh, did I fail at queerness? And that's not the case. I am living a much better experience of life. Having um, had therapy with three therapists now for uh, on and off for the last five or six years, I'm a different person. That person isn't cured. And that's important to me. I think it's because if I'm cured, one, uh, that's not possible, you know, and two, that means I was broken before, um, and I respect the person that I was too much to say like, no, I was I was just a broken piece of crap.
0: And and so like two or three ish years ago, when you were like just selling the book mm-hmm. and starting that pro- per process, was that like a big decision for you to say like, oh God, I'm writing a book, and like part of that is like that I am gay, and like I have to write about that. Did, or Were you fine with it by then?
1: I don't know. Like there were. I realized that like strangers would have opinions about my relationship. And that was very strange. And I realized that if I was going to do this book, honestly, I didn't have the option of living sort of a, a segregated life where I was like, oh, you know, if I run into like some person from my old church in the grocery store, like they only know, I don't have to like mention I'm married to a man, like this weird, like little mini closeting, you know, that can happen sometimes. I didn't want to live like that. So it felt a little bit Like I was choosing to expose myself, but also more importantly, it felt like I was acknowledging what was plainly obvious, which is that like I wasn't fooling anybody. I'm not living a segregated life, you know, like nobody doesn't know that I'm queer. Are there also feelings about you being married to a white person? I'm sure. Yeah. And I was very sensitive to that. And I talked to my husband about that early on. You know, I said some people will have an opinion about me or an opinion about the two of us together. You know, I, I wanted to like run that by him and, and ask, you know, is it okay to be exposed in this way? And he was like, oh, it's up to you. But yeah, I, their opinions don't really affect who we are. It's the truth, right? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what to do with that. And I, I, I do have still a little bit of trepidation about people sort of having an opinion about like the choices that I've made. A lot of times there are people, and I think this is a really valid feeling, that people in the Black community who can sometimes feel like this frustration or confusion about uh, interracial relationships. I totally get it. I also understand that I didn't seek out to date a white man and marry a white man. I didn't say, this is what I'm into. This is my thing. So yeah, it feels a little bit like it's ripe for misinterpretation. But I also feel like people are going to have that opinion regardless of whether I tell them about it in a book or they just see a picture on Instagram. Like, what can I do?
0: Yeah, and I feel like that was a, like a weird question, but I also just like plainly like don't know if like people still have like ill feelings about like interracial relationships. Yeah, because to me, it's such a non-issue.
1: Right. I don't. I don't know that would be ill feelings. I mean, some people absolutely do. You know, whatever. But I think that more more commonly, uh, there's just a sort of a question about what the desires behind an interracial relationship are in both both directions you know like when i meet other black people who are in in interracial relationships more often than not, we always share the experience of like going through that person's like dating history like like looking at photos on facebook or whatever just to see if like it's a trend you know like because you don't want to be tokenized there's a lot of internal things that make it a complicated experience sometimes. And I think there's a lot of external things that people are still sort of sorting through. I love to see depictions of Black love, particularly Black queer love, because we don't see it very much. I think about the movie Moonlight. I love Moonlight so much. And I understand the choice to sort of give them this moment of physical intimacy at the end, but not have them kiss. But I also was just like, kiss, kiss each other. Because
0: how many other movies have you seen, like two Black men? kissing i can't
1: i like i
0: i'm I'm, i struggle to think of which leads me to the issue of like hollywood gives us like race Mm -hmm. and it's black and white only
1: yeah absolutely yeah that's the the other thing i'm like i am hard pressed to think of like a black man and a, a a thai man you know uh in in a relationship on screen and part of it's Just sort of like, we only get but so much. And so the things that we get aren't as diverse as we are. Um, And I think sometimes when people push back on individual relationships, uh, in reality, what they're really pushing back on is the scarcity of our representation. I can't represent all of queerness and all of different iterations of queer relationships. And the fact is, I met a white man at the LGBTQ community center in Philadelphia, and we accidentally fell in love and got married, you know? It's a very tricky thing. And it's the thing that we ask people in minority positions to do much more than we ask people in majority positions. So we ask queer people to, to identify in a queerness. You know, we, we don't say, we, we might say to like whoever, Stephen King or whatever, like, where's the oh, more queer characters? But like, you know, a queer novelist, you're like, why is this about a straight couple? How dare, you know? And we're allowed to write about whatever we want. And we do the same thing with with racial minorities. We are tasked with being representative and also with pushing diversity forward. And I think that's, I, I wanna do that. But I also wanna do that in a way that is fair and true because it's a responsibility that all of us have, not just not, not just people who are in minority positions.
0: And that was R. Eric Thomas. His extremely funny and wonderful new book is called The Kings of Bmore*. The Kings of Bmore* comes out on May 31st. And he'd probably want me to note that you can pre-order the book right now. This original interview was recorded when his memoir came out in 2020. That memoir is called Here For It. And if you enjoy the interview, we have a small favor to ask and that is to please post about the show on social media. Take a screenshot of this and text your friends. Help us spread the word. It is the biggest way you can help our show continue to make new episodes. So take out your phones right now. I'll wait. Still waiting. Still waiting. No, really, take out your phone. Do it, please. Okay, thank you so much. I'm really fulfilling that gay drama queen stereotype here. We are brought to you by The Advocate Magazine in partnership with Glad. I'm Jeffrey Masters on Twitter and Instagram at JeffMasters1. I'll see you there. Bye.